listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Hello! You're listening to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio with me, Deb Wolf. And I was going to talk about grief and shame and a dog being about the same as a two-year-old because I heard Dr. Stanley Korn talking about that on TV the other day and I made notes and I have questions and arguments and queries about all that. But in the meantime, as we were waiting to come on air here at Animal Party Pet Life Radio... Dr. Stan Korn from UBC and author of Intelligence of Dogs and Many Other Dogs. He just started telling me all about colorblindness in dogs and fascinating things. So we'll start with that. Welcome to the show, Dr. Korn. Glad to be here, Deb. So, yes, I was watching you on TV the other day having an argument out loud with you that you were not aware of. So I thought I'd give that to you later today. But in the meantime, uh, what were you just saying about the similarities between humans and dogs and colorblind confusion. Yeah, there's some wonderful research which was done by a Dr. Knights at Southern California. And what he did is he taught dogs to pick out which of three colors, uh, colored discs was different. So there would be two of them would be the same and one of them would be different. And in this way, he could map out the color confusions that dogs have. And this is a hideous process. I mean, it takes the dogs about two months or so to to get the task right. And then they literally have to send the dog through several thousand of these comparisons. And so the whole thing takes about nine months. And so they've done uh, now a half a dozen dogs. And they find that dogs do have color vision, but they have a form of colorblindness, which is very similar to the two most common forms of colorblindness in human beings. And in human beings, we call the protonopia and deuteranopia. And basically what they involve is people who can't tell the difference between red and green. And that's basically what dogs can't do. They can't separate the difference between red and green. So they see the entire world. If you if you were looking at a doggy spectrum, this is a great thing to talk about radio. Well, just look at these colors. But anyway, if you looked at what dogs see, they're seeing the whole world in blues and yellows and grays. And it's a particularly interesting thing because right now the most popular color for dog toys is either red or safety orange. And those colors... The dog can't see. Well, it's not that they can't see it. It's just that they see it as the same color as grass. So you throw that. So it's easy for us to find. But you know what? The dog's using his nose anyway, isn't he? Well, sometimes a dog will get very sight-oriented. I mean, I had a flat-coated retriever, Odin, who was absolutely retrieving mad. And sometimes he would run right past the bumper over there. And it's not because he was stupid or obstinate. It's just because, you know, that red bumper was, as far as he could tell, the same color as the grass. And so if he wasn't paying careful attention, he'd miss it. And I pointed this out. Wow, uh, that's pretty extreme. I mean, I've had Goldens where I could take a stick and throw it in a pile of other sticks, indistinguishable in every way, and they'd pick out that stick that I happened to touch by scent. And you're telling yeah. me he's running right by the thing that smells oh, like your hand? When, when, oh, when, dear. 
<laughs> when he he had a full head of steam, I mean, he just he thought he was a greyhound sometimes. But the interesting thing is, is you know, I was I was talking about this at one point at a scientific conference, and and somebody said, well, that can't be true because you know the most popular color for toys is that bright red, and manufacturers would do that if dogs couldn't see it easily against the grass. And so I had to point out to him, the reason they do that is because that red or safety orange is very easily seen by human beings, and it's the humans who are buying the toys, not the dogs. Yeah, that so. makes sense. Because you want to, you can't smell your toy. You need to find it in the park. You know, the other day I was watching TV trying to stop thinking about dogs and dog training. And I happened on Judge Judy. And it was a case about a dog, two dogs behind a fence that attacked another little dog that had poked its nose under. So then I switched channels and I was watching People's Court. And now it was about a dog that, <laughs> that got out of a car and was running loose and caused a car accident. So I switched again, and I got to this show called Murdoch Mysteries, and it seemed to be about a murder, and then they closed in on the body, and it was a show dog that had been murdered. And so I switched the channel again, and I happened on William Shatner's Weird or What, I think it's called, and they start interviewing you about dogs. And that's what I want to talk about next when we come back from break. But, you know, William Shatner is a cousin of mine. He's in my family. My mom's met him, and I can't get him to come on my show. But you were on his show, which makes me really, really want to get connected. How could you connect me to William Shatner? That's what I want to know. Well, I want you to know that, in fact, I never met the man. They arranged for me to be on the show, and then they, through clever editing, put him in it. So the entire thing was shot here in Vancouver, and he was wandering the world being (laughs) William Shatner. (laughs) You know, I once did the weirdest radio pet interview I think I've ever done, and it was with Martha Stewart, and she wasn't there, but they'd scripted the questions and the answers, so they knew sort of what I was going to say, and so they played me her pre-recorded questions. So I'd say something amusing, and they'd play her laughing, and then I'd... And it was just completely strange. So I was on the radio with Martha Stewart, but not really, you know. It's well, so strange what they can do. When David Suzuki was still on the, he still had Quirks and Quarks on CBC on the radio before he started on the TV and the nature of things. That's pretty much the way that he would do this. I mean, he would send out a researcher who would give the interview and then David would shape the appropriate question to make him look very smart to elicit an answer, and then they'd edit in the answer. And it was it was wow. somewhat annoying. <laughs> it's, yeah, people used to say to me, what's she like? And I, I don't know. I have no idea what she's like. But, um, okay, so, so we're going to come back. We're going to go to a break. We're going to come back and talk about some of the things you said on that show. And I'll just give you a heads up bits. You can think about it during the break. You said that dogs are like two-year-olds and that they have no shame, no grief, no pride, no suicide. So, all right, we're going to talk about that after the break. Stay tuned to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio with my guest, Dr. Stanley Corrin, author of Intelligence of Dogs and many other books and um, professor of psychology and the guy who knows about such things. Like, does your dog experience shame or grief or pride. I bet you think it does, like I do. So stay tuned. We'll be back soon. Don't leave this party before. 
before it's over because the best is yet to come. Only losers leave the party early anyway. Party on. Back in a few. This is Ed Lukasevic. And Cindy Lukasevic at Dinovite. This year, whenever you order a 90-day supply of Dinovite for your dog, we'll send you a free sample of one of the other doggy things we make. Like Lico Chops, Super Mega Fish Oil, or Doggo Suds Shampoo. What's on your dog's wish list? We'll offer a different freebie each week at Dinovite.com. Don't you just love the sound of healthy, happy dogs? Dinovite is nutrition. Dinovite for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. You're inside the VIP room. With the hottest party in town. Back to the party. Let's go. Hello, you're listening to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio. Do you have a dog that looks totally ashamed when he's done something you know he knows he's not supposed to do? Like destroyed something you love or barked what he shouldn't have or nipped or bit or jumped or done something he just knows is wrong and he's sitting there looking scornful. Yes, or maybe you have a dog who's prideful. He's just so proud when he gets things right. Or or maybe you have a dog who was really depressed once. Well, doctor, how is this possible that we all have these animals that seem to exhibit these signs and yet on this show you were saying, for example, that they don't have shame. Is that really possible that dogs don't have shame? Dogs don't have, what you have to recognize is that the mind of, a, of an average dog is equivalent to a two to a two and a half year old. And the mind of a, a super dog, the ones in the top 20% of canine intelligence is equivalent to about two and a half to three year old. And the emotions uh, develop over time. So, you know, we start off with a sort of very, very diffuse kind of excitement, and then we begin to get, you know, the negative and the positive emotions. And But the social emotions, things like guilt and shame and pride, um, don't come until the child is about four years of age. Okay, and okay, but, but, but wait a minute. So jealousy... For sure, I see that with dogs, but you kind of corrected that one. I see yep. that. That's why they, they do that bait and switch with toys, and they can, yes, they can fight over attention, and there's a lot of jealousy. But this no shame. When I had an elderly dog who no longer could control himself, and he would often, you know, in the morning I would come down and there would be a puddle of urine underneath him. I never looked at him like I was angry or upset, but... And it was more when the other dog smelled him. He looked ashamed when the other dog smelled him. Now, he was a wolf cross. I don't know if that makes a difference. But he seemed ashamed of his situation. Well, you know, shame and guilt are the, are the two which most people tend to uh, think that dogs have. I mean, there's, I mean, there are even websites, you know, dog shaming websites where, you, you know, you have a dog supposedly looking very ashamed or guilty and sort of the around him is, is the evidence of his transgression. But 
that's not the case. I mean, suppose that you go out and when you come back, you find that uh, Lassie has redecorated your new white carpet in shades of, you know, sunshine and earth tone. <laughs> and Lassie's sort of slinking around and you think to yourself, she's feeling guilty or she's feeling right. that she did that sort yeah. of Well, that's not the case. I mean, what's the case is that Lassie has learned that when you appear and there is also this particular stuff on the floor and that kind of thing, then bad things happen to puppies. I mean, she's not ashamed. (laughs) Yeah, she knows. And you know what? That that sort of backs up what I experience when there's more than one puppy. When a homeowner is saying, you know, I come home and I know one of them did it, but I can't tell because Mitzi always looks guilty and Blue never looks guilty. And it's like, well, they just have different personalities. You can't tell. Just because Mitzi always looks guilty doesn't mean Mitzi always did it, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, by the (laughs) way, there is a way that you can sort that out if you have multiple dogs. How? Uh, this is a very clever little thing. You get the crayons, the little wax crayons that they they have for kids, which are absolutely safe. And okay. you break up some pieces of it. And you put different colored pieces in the different food bowls. And at least if it's a number two that they're doing, oh. you'll be able to tell which of the dogs did it by the color of the wax bits <gasps> in it. Oh, that's clever. Oh, my goodness. That is good one. Okay. I thought you were going to suggest like uh, cameras and things like that. No, 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 you, no. You could also separate them when they're not there. And if they're puppies, they should be crate trained. But but that's kind of off topic. We're still getting into yep. the psychology uh, so, of so, 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 shame. So, so, and, well, uh, what about uh, pride, though? When uh, you see those super dogs nail their tricks or the seeing eye dog steers his blind owner out of the path of traffic and the dog is just his chest is out and he's beaming and maybe nobody's even paying attention to him but he is so proud of his job well done i caught that frisbee i nailed that duck i saved that lady you know what i mean well that's pride isn't it well you know we interpret it as pride okay it's really the dog is expecting a reward I mean, that's what you get. You're getting that sort of excitement, no, which, really? which sort of I'm. T- Look, let me give you just an example. Let's flip back to this guilt and shame thing, okay? Yeah. You know, for 150 years, I had a, a national TV show in Canada. And so for one of those shows, you know, we had a person who had this absolutely lovely, smooth collie, and she was continually in the garbage. And the owner was absolutely certain that, you know, she was showing guilt because of the fact that, you know... Garbage, yes. Garbage garbage all over the floor. And so when he would come into the house and she started slinking around, he figured, oh, yeah, she's been in the garbage again. And I said, no, that's not guilt. And I said, I can prove it to you, okay? So what I did was the following, okay? I chased the owner out of the house and I took the dog, and I forget the dog's name. Uh, Oh, the dog's name was Lacey, sorry. So I took Lacey into the kitchen and put her in a sit-stay, and then I took the garbage and scattered it all over the kitchen. So she knew that I had done this, right? Yeah. Anyway, then we walked back into the living room, and we called the owner back in, and she started slinking around. Now, I mean, she should have no no guilt because she didn't do it, right? I Uh, get it. So she's, she was worried about the, you know, the upcoming punishment. Well, it's very often the same case for the positive emotions. I mean, the things which we call pride, those things are based on the fact that the dog knows when they complete a task, they usually get 
a nice reward in the form of either food or social interaction or play or whatever else. So what you can very often see, especially if it's a multiple-part task, and I think that you have probably seen this sort of thing, which is the dog starts off the task in a very workmanlike manner, and then as they're getting close to the end, they act more and more excited, and you're probably interpreting that as pride. You know, I'm almost there, and now I've finished it. But really what's happening is they're coming closer and closer to the reward. Okay, but the difference, I mean, uh, to me, it's nuanced. The difference between a human feeling great when they actually hit that basket, get that golf ball in the hole, whatever it is they're working on, you know, shoot that bird out of the sky is the same pride in work well done that dog gets from nailing that bird and bringing it back. I mean, what's the difference? I don't see the difference. Well, the difference is that... that Now, I don't want to get super technical on this or anything, but it's like the difference between guilt and shame, okay? Guilt means is something where you know that you have done something wrong, and shame is where you feel that other people will feel that you have done something wrong. Well, pride is where you feel that other people are going to think that you did well, Okay. And so it's one of the social emotions. And these social emotions really develop quite late. As I said... Oh, I don't know. I'm looking at the blue healer, the border collie, okay? And he's he's just done something for me. And he can smell I don't have a treat on me. I don't. It's not about food. And he does it perfectly, maybe after struggling to get it and get it and get it. And he, he, he'll even go back and do it himself without me asking him to because he, maybe he went over a jump and he, and he ticked it and the, the pole fell down. And so I reset it. And then he, he's just working at it, working at it. And then he's just so proud. I, uh, well, I don't well, know. It's so no, no, similar no, to no, a the child. Reason why, the reason why dogs will continue to work on these things, even if there's not an immediate treat coming, is something which psychologists call functional autonomy. And that's just a technical way of saying that doing the task itself becomes rewarding. So, for example, you know, I spent my life as a university professor, okay? And I wrote, and I continually wrote articles and that sort of thing. And I suppose that back in the early days, I was doing it because, you know, you were rewarded each time you published an article or a book or that sort of thing. But after a while, it came to be the case that simply writing was rewarding. So I write because it feels good to write, and I like writing and producing the thing. And this is a very typical kind of a thing. You have a a guy who has been a carpenter all of his life, and then he retires, and what does he take up as a hobby? cabinet making you know yeah, sort of I understand. okay I understand. so so that's what happens with the dogs if they do a task you know and they're heavily rewarded early on and they do it for long enough then in fact doing the task becomes rewarding and that's the reason why the dog will go on you know even when there's no reward which is uh, immediately visible i mean it's a wonderful thing when that happens um you know, you can see a dog, for example. In the oh, my dogs nature. get like this. They, every dog I work with eventually gets like this because That's they right. just they get the joy of it, of just feeling of, of succeeding. And I always thought that was pride. That was pride and work well done. No, that was And, that and was, not long, oh, she's going to give me a treat later because no, I might it, not. 
it's, it's anticipating the reward. But as I said, the neat thing about functional autonomy is that doing the task becomes the reward. Okay. Right. Okay. And, and that's what I see. They love to work. They work to, yeah. That, but okay. So how is that different from a human? I'm not, I'm still not getting that we're just so elevated from that's that. That's not what, pride. That's simply contentment or happiness. In other words, I'm doing this because I like it. Pride. Okay. Is, okay. So is, what about the dog who leaps into the water with a bunch of other dogs and they're all going for the same ball stick, whatever that you've thrown? The one that gets it. Isn't he proud? He got it. Instead no, of everybody. No, he, no, no, he's not proud because no. proud means that the other dogs are basically all going to think better of him. They are. Okay. They okay. stand around and they sometimes lick his muzzle and they show him respect. And he stands there all boastful and big and goes, yeah, <laughs> no, 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 I no. got it. And they're all like, you rock, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> no. No, no, I, no I, I, I'm afraid not. You know, there's, there's this thing which psychologists talk about <laughs> that. When we are interpreting the emotions of other people, then in fact, what we tend to use is the context. We, we tend to use what's going on around them, okay? So, for example, a typical kind of a thing would be you see Mona Lisa's face and nobody can figure out that sort of smile and what it means and is it a happy smile or is it a smirk or is it, you know, and the reason is there's no context. You can't see what's going on around but in, this, in the case which you're talking about, you've just seen that there was a competition. So now you're going to interpret that particular behavior as being, you know, pride. On the other hand, if you hadn't seen the competition, then you might have thought, well, this is a dog which is just being selfish and he's just being playing, you know, keep away with the other dogs. So we as human beings, we can't put up with ambiguity. We, especially when it comes to emotions, we want to know what that expression or that behavior means. And so if we can't read it fully from the individual that we're looking at, we read it from what's going on around them. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm not going to let you off the hook. We're going to go to break <laughs> and we're going to come back. I got a couple more to ask you because I just, I don't know. There were two stories in the news recently. There was an elderly man who got trapped outside somewhere and would have died, but instead his golden retriever stayed with him. And when he couldn't scream for help anymore, the dog barked for help when he heard people. And the dog kept his extremities warm. The guy didn't have frostbite at all. He should have been dead. So this golden did all this great stuff. And then and I saw the picture. It's got a big white face. It's a really old dog, right? You wouldn't think that it was up to any of this. And it's probably never done anything heroic in its life till now. And then there was this little puppy, like hardly even house trained, just a little tiny little puppy in an apartment in the West End that saved everybody from a fire. And I just don't know two-year-olds who do this. So we're going to go to break and I'm going to let me actually have the last word before break because you know when we come back, Dr. Korn's going to tell me that they don't do it because they're beyond two-year-olds. But listen to our commercials and we'll be back really, really quickly at Animal Party Pet Life Radio with Dr. Korn and me, Deb Wolf. Stay tuned. Yet to come. Stick around. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, 
front paw sleeves and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Begging to hear more of your favorite show? Full episodes of all our shows are available on demand. Go to PetLifeRadio.com to fetch our entire lineup of possum pet podcasts. Also, dig us up in iHeartRadio and iTunes. Let's talk pets. Live and on demand only from Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com You're inside the VIP room. With the hottest party in town. Back to the party. Let's go. Hello. You're back on Animal Party Pet Life Radio with me, Deb Wolf. And I'm trying to figure out how the dogs I see at Camp Good Dog and when I train them, when I work with them, the difficult ones, the good ones, the well-behaved ones, all of them, many of them, I should say, because some, some of the pugs and the hound dogs are not so gifted, but... Many, many, many of the dogs I work with seem to far surpass the abilities of average two-year-olds. Again, I guess average two-year-old, gifted two-year-old. There's a big, big variation there. Same with dogs. But to me, when a dog can save a man from the cold and frostbite or a puppy, a baby puppy can save a whole building from a fire, is that not a little bit more advanced than a two-year-old, at least in that skill set, Dr. Corn? We'll take that window between two and three, okay, because remember, the dog's you know, have that range. The average dogs are two to two and a half in, in intelligence and the super dogs are two and a half to three years. And so let's look at what's happening in kids at that point. The behaviors which you're talking about are behaviors which are associated with empathy. And empathy is simply the ability to see what the emotions are in another individual and to respond to them. And the beauty of it is, I hate that these things keep wandering off into technical words, but anyway, and helping somebody without expecting a reward is what we call altruism. Now, empathy and altruism actually start to appear in that two to three-year-old range. That's where, for example, I mean, you've had kids, Deb, so you know that at some point yeah, they time, get there. At some mm-hmm. point in time, their brother or sister, you know, falls down and hurts themselves. And the child, who might only be two and a half years of age, will run over to try to help, okay? So that's the behavior which we see in kids. Now, dogs have that same range of mental abilities, but they also are extremely athletic. And so, you know, they can do a lot of things and look much more graceful, look much more purposeful than a two- to a three-year-old. So what you get in these cases when a dog tries to help another dog or a person, is its empathy. And it's the same kind of thing which we're seeing in the two- to three-year-olds. Now, because of their mental level, they sometimes can't figure out, you know, the most efficient way to do this sort of thing. But they do what they can. And we've now learned that there's a very typical way that dogs try to get help. And what they do is they will run up, they will leave the individual, let's say, who is hurting, and they'll run up to the next individual they find, and they'll bark at them. And then they'll look in the direction that the problem is. And then they'll bark again, and then they'll start to move in that direction and continue to look back to see whether the person is following. And this is the doggy equivalent of when a young child 
sees yeah. a problem, let's say their brother or their sister, so they'll run over to their mother or the or the next person they find, and they'll tug at them, okay? They'll tug at their clothes, and then they'll look in the direction, and then they'll tug at the clothes again, and then they'll look in the direction and take a few steps in that direction, and hopefully, you know, if it works, then you follow. And that's the same thing which happens in the dogs. And so an so, awful oh. lot... <laughs> how does the pu- how does the puppy know the smoke is a problem? A baby wouldn't know. A kid wouldn't know. I don't think. Maybe a three year old, but maybe. But well, but in, in the case, of it's puppy, it's not a grown dog, right? It's a puppy. How does this you know no, I, equivalent to a six month old baby? I suppose. How does you know like a what is a six month old puppy equivalent but, to? A six month old puppy is probably equivalent to. A kid about a year, year and a half of age in terms of intellect. So um, how'd that puppy know smoke, wake everybody, there's a problem? Okay. The it, Again, this is part of that pattern which I was talking about. So the dog recognizes that there's something wrong. And how, so they, though? How, how does such a young animal recognize something well, is wrong so, if it's so limited, as you say? Like, to me, that that shows... If something wrong can just be something unexpected. Let me let me give you an example. There was an experiment which was run, an experimental study which was recently published, which wanted to see whether they could bring out these kinds of behaviors which I'm telling you about. You know, where you where a dog will run over to its caretaker and sort of you know try to point out that there's something wrong. Well, you know what the stimulus was which they used for this particular task? What? It was just uh, one of those oscillating fans. And then they took and they put some little plastic streamers on it. So it also yes, back scary and stuff. And <laughs> that was enough to trigger the dog, you know, going to solicit, you know, help and comfort from their caretaker. Well, you know, you get a young puppy who doesn't have a whole lot of experience. And there's smoke starting to come out over there. And it smells noxious to the puppy and he doesn't understand it. And so he basically runs for help and comfort. And that's what alerts everybody. It is the dog, you know, showing empathy and trying to get up social support. But it's not sort of sudden heroic urge, you know. It's Okay, you know. okay. He's not the Lone Ranger in no, doggy he's not. form. All and he, right. He's, he's not, not he, Littlest Hobo. No, he's not Littlest Hobo and he's not Rin Tin Tin. But we all feel that, you know. Lassie. That, that, that's right. That's right. We all feel that that when the chips are down, our dog is going to turn into Lassie, and that's fine. I mean, you know, because because they do, they do. That's, that's okay. right. So, sometimes they do. Okay. Sometimes they sound the alarm and save a whole lot of people. Sometimes they sound the alarm, and all they do is annoy your neighbor. So, so earlier in the show, you were saying the difference between normal, average dog, two-year-old ability, and the difference between. You know, that and a super dog is like more like a three-year-old. And then I start to think breed differences because to yep. me that's a big difference. But yep. then a lot of it, you can have a border collie who's not really paying attention and you can have another one who pays attention to everything. So, you know, there is some variation even within a breed. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, but I mean, And then you've got like what is super? Super dog is – how do you define that? Is it how many commands or is it more – is an escape artist a super dog? You know. No, no. We, I, mean, I use the term super dog for the dogs which are in the top twenty percent of canine intelligence. Now, there's a whole bunch of tests that we can use on that, but there are also some massive breed differences. So, 
you know, there are, you know, the brightest dogs are uh, starting from the top, or the Border Collies, uh, followed by the Poodle, followed by the German Shepherd, the Golden Retriever, the oh, Dober- Doberman. Doberman, Doberman Pinscher, the Sheltie, and the Lab, the Labrador Retriever. I mean, you know, those are the top seven breeds of dogs. And, you know, they consistently do well in the kind of school learning things which we tend to use for dogs and that sort of thing. But there are variations. I mean, you know... If I wanted to escape from somewhere, find an escape hole and follow it, I would pick a Shiba Inu or a Husky over any of those dogs, (laughs) tie a rope to it and follow it. I'll find my way out because it will, right? I mean, certain skill set, right? Yeah, I mean, I would choose a Doberman, but that's okay. Doberman, yeah. (laughs) Also, maybe, maybe... Uh, uh, but in any event, but there are differences, okay? It's just like I can say that people are smarter than cows, but I'm sure that there's some people where you have your doubts, right? Yes, so, and there's so, some smart cows out there, too. That's, that's right, but it's the same way that, you know, <laughs> as I said, Labrador Retrievers are the seventh brightest dog in all of dogdom, but every now and then you find one who has the learning ability of a river rock. And so you are going to get those variations. And you know what? Once I met and trained a brilliant Irish setter. Brilliant, though. As brilliant as any dog I ever worked with. Just a, a mastermind dog. And an Irish setter. I was yep. just dumbfounded. Beautiful animal. Terribly difficult to train for the owners who had always had Irish setters who were more like the ones you usually meet. But... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, Irish setters are such sweet dogs. I mean, you know, if you survive their puppyhood, which unfortunately is long, I mean, it takes about two to 18 three years. months, before, yeah. Yeah, something like that. And, <laughs> but by the time they're five, you're writing poems about them. I mean, they're, they're, they're so sweet. <laughs> yeah, and, and getting, like, decor to match. You're like, can I have the interior of my car sort of like him? Because he's beautiful, <laughs> isn't he? Exactly yeah, right. getting clothes that match. Okay, so this whole thing with training, we're talking about training a little bit here. Why is it? Because I know this somewhat, but I don't understand why. Why is it that, okay, so when I... When I work with people, oftentimes when they're working with a dog, they're giving it treats constantly. It's just like treats grow everywhere and they're just part of life and the dog doesn't get what it's earning. So I right away take it back and I don't want them to give a cookie every time the dog does something right. I want them to give a cookie like I would give a sticker to a kid, you know, when the dog's exceptional or it's just made a leap. It it went from not doing something to doing it or doing it poorly to doing it very well or paying attention or some big leap. So sparingly. So that's the whole Pavlov thing, right? Where yep. if you give a dog a reward every single time, it well, doesn't work as well as occasionally. But why? Because, like, why? That seems counterintuitive to me. If I can count on someone to reward me every time, won't I work harder for that person? I don't no. I understand why that is. No, the, the whole idea here, uh, B.F. Skinner, you know, did, did some wonderful work on this. And basically... He said the way that you get a really strong behavior is that when you're when you're originally starting to teach it, you give a reward every time the dog does something right or does an approximation of it. But then you keep moving the goalposts. So you move the goalposts a little bit further so the dog has to do it more perfectly before they get the treat or they have to do it a number of times before they get the treat. Well, the dogs soon learn that. You know, the more times that I do this right – then the more likely it is that I'm going to get a treat. 
So they work harder. They, they do the behaviors more frequently. But it's also the case that if you're rewarding the dog every single time, and then you skip a reward twice, let's say, then the dog figures, oh, well, the faucet has been turned off. I'm going to stop doing this. So the behavior goes away. Whereas if the dog doesn't know whether he's going to get a treat this time or not get a treat, he'll keep working because he figures, well, I just haven't done it enough times or I haven't done it as perfectly as I should. So that's why the behavior is stronger with these sort of intermittent or uh, rewards or these what is technically called a partial reinforcement. Is it true for people too? Oh, yes. Oh, it's definitely true for people. I mean, you have to start doing that when you're rearing kids. I mean, you know, you reward them every single time that they, you know, go to the potty, you know, using the toilet, and then you space it out a little bit. And after yeah, a while, true. you know, they're doing it all the time. So, But what and, about adults, like in a work environment? If your, boss, if your boss notices every good thing you do and rewards you, wouldn't you work harder? Nope, 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 no. nope. No, because you know you're going to get the reward all the time. But if the boss, you know, now and then says, you know, you're doing a really good job, well, you know, you're going to keep working at it, uh, even though you're not getting rewarded every single time. Because you think if you do a bit more and do a little better, that in fact you're going to get that reward. And that's the whole trick. The whole trick here is you want to keep the animal so that the animal is still striving. But you also want to give them what I call partial rewards. Okay, and a partial reward for a human being can just be a smile and a nod and, you know, you know, or if it's a spouse, you know, you just walk over and give a little peck on their cheek and, you know, and just wander off that kind of thing. And in a dog, since they're such social animals, the fact that you pay attention to them is sometimes reward enough. So so that's the game. The game is that Mm -hmm. you have to phase out the rewards. The rewards have to still come, but, you know, they just don't come every time. And and I I think of it as moving the goalposts. So, you know, this time if you take a couple of steps toward the goal line, you know, you get a reward. But now you have to run all the way halfway down the field. And when we were talking about super dogs and regular dogs, so we kind of outlined some of the breeds that might, you know, have, uh, I guess, the anatomy, the mental capacity to become a super dog. But then, I mean, it's got to be nature nurture too, right? If that dog was kept in a backyard on a chain and never learned anything would it still be a super dog or? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, okay. No, no. It's, and it's, so it's, it's, it's sort of like Mozart, okay? You know, we all think of Mozart as this brilliant genius, okay? And he probably was. He came from a musical family where his father was a composer and a performer and that sort of thing. But it's also the case that his father worked him at music from the time he was two years of age. And so, you know, he was practicing and and writing and playing and composing. I mean, he composed his first piece of music when he was seven years of age. (laughs) So, you know, yes, you have to have the neurology. You have to have the the built-in brain parts and that sort of thing. But that's your potential. Whether or not you can reach that potential depends upon the environment, depends upon how you're reared and that sort of thing. And then is it command-based? Like, would you say, for example, without testing them, just knowing what they're able to do, would you say police dogs and seeing-eye dogs would be super dogs or not necessarily? Well, you know. Not necessarily? Not necessarily at all. I mean, Mm, you know, I I have seen. It depends on the specific work that the dogs have to do. Now, there's a tendency that we pick dogs which are going to do the work best. And that involves two things. It involves not just the intelligence, but it also involves the temperament of the dog. 
So the dog has to have this temperament to be willing to do the job and to stay focused on the job for the rewards. So, for example, the second brightest dog in all of dogdom is the poodle. And we're here we're talking about the miniature and the, and the standard poodle. Of course you are, because you're uh, talking to me, breeder of standard poodles. Thank you right. very much. Yes, but we're, yes. But we're not no, but they are smart, and they're very right. like they can figure out stuff independently, open latches, get out of things. They're very clever. That's right, but you'll never see a poodle as a seeing eye dog because they don't have the temperament for it. So, for example, a Wally Conron, who is credited with with producing the uh, Labradoodle, actually produced that crossbreed because. He was uh, working for the uh, Guide Dogs for the Blind as a breeder trainer uh, in Australia. And they had a person who needed a guide dog, but her husband was very, very allergic. So he thought, well, you know, I'll just train a poodle. They're good, smart dogs to be a guide dog. He tried 30 different dogs before he finally gave up and took the cross between the lab and the poodle and uh-huh. found one which was hypoallergenic. And it's not that the dog was not smart. It was that the dog didn't have the temperament for it. And that You, you know sub- what, though? I, I've trained dogs, standard poodles, to work. Yeah. One, guy, one man walked with crutches and uh, had severe Parkinson's symptoms, and I trained the dog to work with him. Another rheumatoid arthritis and similar situation, a woman. And in both cases, I mean, it... You train a poodle differently is really the thing. It's not that they won't do the work. No, no, it's not that they won't do the work. But as I said, they they don't have the temperament for certain tasks. The ones which you're talking about are good because the dog simply has to focus on the person. But to be a guide dog, the dog has to focus on what's going on around them. And what happens with the poodle is partially because they're so bright is they see something going on. Oh, that's rather interesting. Absolutely. Uh, okay. they are so, yes. and, they for, and they forget that they've got this person attached to them. I'll just go point. meet this person. I'll be back in a minute. I know they're very, uh, yeah, they're, ve- <laughs> they're ve- especially the gregarious ones, the ones you would pick because the males tend to be more outgoing and social and they like to check out everything and everyone. And yeah, that yeah. wouldn't come in handy. But you do have to select especially. I break golden doodles too, so I do see the difference. I really do. I want to ask you something. One quick thing before we go. No, two quick things. Okay, maybe more. <laughs> suicide and grief. You said in that TV thing that, that dogs don't commit suicide. And I wonder about when a dog loses its owner to death or divorce or, you know, for some reason the dog never sees the owner again. Or two dogs raised together or loving, you know, mother, daughter, dog situation one dog dies sometimes the other one and i've been called in for this will refuse to eat for the longest time is that not trying to starve itself no 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 no. dogs really don't have that conception of death but that's for another program but the point here is the dogs do get very depressed and dogs can get uh, ptsd i mean but the dogs get very very depressed when bad things happen to them And one of the symptoms of depression is, and it's in people too, this is not people who are planning on suicide or something like that, is they just lose their appetite. And they're no longer paying attention to their own bodily symptoms and and signs. And so so it's not the dog trying to starve itself to death. I mean, you know, it turns out, for example, that there's a bridge in Scotland 
And, uh, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. And the whole time they were showing it, I'm thinking, where are the rabbits? Where are the squirrels? There's got to be something, right? And well, it ends it, up, yeah? It's not it, a it, ghost. It, <laughs> no, it ends up that basically there were wild mink around. And the dogs would race over toward the smell of the of the mink and the railing like dog suicide bridge and people thought it was haunted and everything but really they're just hunting mink which makes total (laughs) sense do they get things like because lately i get these calls from people and i go there and it's really just a training situation come sit stay heal the usual but they describe as they're talking to me they'll say my dog has adhd or my dog has autism or my dog's ocd and is that just because it's like Oh, yeah, I'm gluten-free because my neighbor is. Is it just one of those type of things? Or some, of it, so, some of it is. I, but OCD, by the way, is something which dogs can get. But Well, uh, yeah, I've seen it, OCD dogs. They're the ones who will, like, obsessively chew it themselves. And, I mean, you know when you got one. It isn't that, a... That's right. Or I had a colleague who had a dog. He had this one compulsive behavior, and that is he would take food out of his bowl and he would... And he would plant one piece of kibble in each corner of the room. And then once he had the four pieces of kibble planted in the corners of the room, he would then start and eat one kibble and another and all the way around back. So he'd wow. eat four pieces of kibble and then he'd go back to the bowl and do the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, that that's OCD wow. behavior. Okay. What kind you of know. dog was he? It was a beagle, believe it or not. A beagle. He's, so he's rewarding? He's giving himself reward for perimeter search. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. That is crazy. Oh, that's just – I think I would have taught him a command for that and got him doing that, like, outside well, and tried to you know detract. And then inside, I don't know what replacement you could do for that one. There's Holy. A research, there's a researcher uh, in Philadelphia. I think she's at the University of Pennsylvania there by the name of Karen Overall. And she's been writing papers about the fact that dogs can be used as the models for certain kinds of human problems. And mostly the problems which she's worried about are, in fact, the obsessive compulsive behaviors and the phobias. But these things like, you know, my dog is autistic, I don't think so. I mean, I I just don't (laughs) think that that's the the, the sort of thing. I think that's, you know, you're you're getting that message from somebody who's a vegan who is keeping all gluten out of the house and that sort of thing. And yeah, buys organic and yeah, exactly uh, that's right. You know, and, you know and, when yeah. I but okay. So ADHD. There are certain breeds to me that always seem like they're not really sort of big. Yes, attention. they are called terriers. <laughs> I, 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 this is from somebody who loves terriers. I mean, I, I you know, right. but if I bring another terrier into my house, I lose my wife, and she has made oh. that quite explicit. You know, there are some dogs which have a very high activity level. And within those dogs, you could get other, you could get uh, individuals who are, who really seem to be quite hyper. And that was the reason why, uh, you know, some people, you know, recognize that you couldn't train that out of the dog. I mean, you know, you get a dog who's, who's born to bark and he barks. I mean, so that's the reason why people like Nick Dodman from Tufts, started to prescribe things like, you know, a doggy version of Prozac. There sure seem to be a lot of dogs on these drugs, though, and not always as temporarily as I would have hoped. No, I think that a lot of that has to do with breeders. I mean, Mm. you know, uh, 
you know, the good breeders breed for temperament as well as for confirmation. And once you've lost the temperament, it's much, much harder to get that back than, you know, the fancy head shape. And that's and it's thing. genetics. It's the father's genes, but it's also the mother because she's not only contributing her genes, she's teaching the pups at a very early age what to fear, what to trust, how to behave very early. Yeah, yeah. So and, it's and, so key. Yeah, and there's actually some very, very nice studies which which show how the mother's behavior can influence the puppy's uh, behavior for life. But, you know, the problem there usually is that the mother was not well-bred. So, you know, so, you know a poorly bred mother is, in fact, not going to be a good mother to puppies. So, well, you know what? We are straying off the topics we covered today and in the nick of time because we're out of show time. But I would love to have you back and talk about all these types of things. I've got more on my list we never covered. <laughs> so maybe in a month or two, you'll come back and join me. By then, you'll probably have another book to talk about, I'm guessing. <laughs> right? Oh, the next book probably won't be out until the end of the year. But Okay, uh, what's the last one? What's your most last, recent? Mm-hmm. last one is called God's ghosts and black dogs it's all about the mythology and folklore of dogs it's a, it's a hoot. oh perfect okay i would like to book you to come back on the show and talk about that well anytime Deb. okay thank you very much dr corn so everybody we've been talking to dr stanley corn author of the intelligence of dogs and can you tell me that title again dr corn god's latest- ghosts and black dogs there you go god's ghosts and black dogs wow okay So check that out, and we'll have him back on the show. If you've got questions for Dr. Corrin about why your dog does what it does, psychology of humans or dogs, anything like that, send them to me at Pet Life Radio, and I'll ask him next time we're on the air. All right, everybody, until next time, it's me, Deb Wolf, saying from Pet Life Radio, and from me and Dr. Corrin, be good to your animals. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.